the city had so many buildings, it had no ability to manage them themselves, mm -hmm. uh, no ability to even outsource the management. And the way I usually describe it to people is if you were alive and breathing and raised your hand, uh, you could have a building in the city of New York. Welcome to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. In New York, in the early 1970s, government disinvestment, coupled with widespread landlord neglect and abandonment, gave rise to squatting, urban homesteading, and other forms of self-help housing. Residents took control of city-owned land and buildings and developed or rehabilitated their own housing. The ultimate goal for many of these tenants was to take their buildings out of the speculative housing market and own them collectively and democratically. Today, around 1,300 resident-controlled, low-income housing cooperatives exist in New York City, providing some of the most deeply affordable and stable housing in the city. The Urban Homesteading Assistance Board, or UHAB, grew out of the self-help housing movement. UHAB was founded in 1973 and started by working with self-organized groups of tenants to convert homesteading projects into limited equity cooperatives, affordable in perpetuity and owned by their tenants. You know, fire and abandonment. Abandonment is sort of a process. So first the building be occupied by low-income people, uh, a landlord, if it's an unscrupulous landlord, they would start diminishing services. Mm. They would stop managing the building closely. They would stop paying their real estate taxes, stop paying their utility bills, and eventually, as the building started to vacate, could turn into a, a place for arson to take place, and or just mm -hmm. an abandoned building that would turn into a, you know, a blight and an eyesore and a potential for a fire. This was happening starting in the late '60s, off accelerating all through the '70s, all the way through the late '70s to early '80s. The end state of abandonment was a building being empty, vacant perhaps demolished and turned over to the city of New York, foreclosed upon by the city of New York for non-payment of real estate taxes. That was the voice of Charles Levin. Charles was one of the founders of UHAB and eventually the executive director. What you heard was an excerpt from an oral history of UHAB conducted by researcher Connor Snow. So my name is Connor Snow. I am an archivist, recent graduate of the New York University Archives and Public History Program, uh, currently based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania due to coronavirus complications. <laughs> the idea of the project, the larger project that I started working on, really started um, in the spring of 2019. I had been enrolled in a community archives class at New York University and the professor is connected with UHAB. And so they were really looking for a group of people or archivists to archive just this entire backlog of papers that they had since the 1970s. So we began working with them uh, really as a class project to go through everything, organize the materials, kind of go and see what they had. And we just came across a lot of interesting stories, uh, the history of the uh, homesteading movement in New York, the history of the organization itself. And so I realized, I said, you know, I didn't want to just write a paper about something that they had done, but I, I really wanted to see what you have wanted, uh, what they desired as an organization. And something that they really expressed a need for was just 
getting the personal stories of people who were there during the 1970s, who saw New York City during the housing crisis, who were there during the formation of the organization. Here, Connor discusses some of the themes that emerged from his research. One of the themes really was, I think, dealing with the city. <laughs> how can people who are working with you have, or how can you have really work and function with a city that really doesn't want these buildings? Another theme was the theme of community, which is really important. How does different shareholders in, in a HDFC live together? You know, what is that experience like? What does community mean? Why are people in the buildings in the first place? The theme of work, work and pride, having pride in the fact that you rehabilitated a building yourself, that you live there, that this is something that you own, that it's not only something that you own, but your community comes together to own. You're about to hear excerpts from Connor's interviews. First is Charles Levin. You know, probably the best way to start with UHAB is uh, give you the chronology of uh, how we started. I was a uh, undergraduate at MIT and met uh, Don Turner. Don was in touch with Jim Morton, James Parks Morton, who was the dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And Jim had just been appointed to be the dean in 1972 of the cathedral. Uh, the cathedral was a, you know, a big, sleepy, hulking, gothic cathedral on the Upper West Side that had really not been a very active place uh, for a long, long time. And Jim immediately wanted to do some programs, do things for the neighborhood, do things for New York. And uh, with the help of the cathedral, we essentially said, you know, New York is filled with unemployed people and abandoned buildings. Why not put, and people who need higher quality housing in distressed neighborhoods, let's put all of those things together and start a self-help housing program for New York based on the handful of efforts that had happened already by 72, 73. So in the fall of 73, I moved to New York and by the first quarter of 74, sometime in early 74, we started an organization uh, called You Have at the Cathedral with a cathedral sponsorship with myself and Philip being the first two employees. So that, that, that was sort of how we got, how I got started with You Have. We worked with groups who wanted to take over buildings. So we had people who would say, gee, I want to take a building, would help them try and find an abandoned building to take over that was suitable for their needs mm -hmm. uh, in the neighborhood they wanted, of the size they wanted, in not so bad shape so it could be renovated. And uh, we would start working with them and start organizing them and helping them to go through the various things you had to do in order to buy the building from the city and arrange for financing. At the same time, we were meeting not just with individual groups of potential homesteaders, we started meeting with a network of community organizations that was just starting around the city. And so we had both connections uh, kind of to the small neighborhood nonprofit organizations that were just starting, mm -hmm. as well as directly to individual groups of homesteaders who said, hey, I want to take a building over, what do we do? The neighborhoods that we were operating in, Central Harlem, East Harlem, Lower East Side, parts of Brooklyn, where, you know, the traditionally low-income, red-line neighborhood, Hispanic, African-American, concentrations of poverty, concentrations of low-income housing, and concentrations of, of tenement buildings and older distressed housing. And so as the population fell from the peak in the 50s to the trough in the 70s, that housing had 
less demand from people who wanted to rent it and less effective demand as it were, because mostly the people who wanted to rent it were people in poverty uh, and very low income and they couldn't pay the costs mm. of even running a building, never mind the capital costs of repairing or owning a building. So you saw from starting in the late sixties, but all the way through the seventies, probably peaking at least in the public's eye in 77, and that was the, the the famous World Series where Howard Cosell uh, announcing a game from Yankee Stadium looked out and there were five or six fires in the Bronx at the time. Oh, wow. And you could see them all from the uh, broadcast booth at Yankee Stadium. And he said, the Bronx is burning. The city prior to 78 would let a building not pay real estate taxes for three years. So imagine a landlord's running the building. The building is occupied. You're still collecting rent, but you stop paying your real estate taxes. That doesn't have the impact on the building, and uh, but it means the building's on a track downward. You right. could not pay, if, if you didn't pay for three years, you were then eligible to be foreclosed upon. But oftentimes the city's foreclosure process would take a one or two year period. Mm. So you could have a, starting in the early 70s, you could have a five year period where a building was in limbo in a progressive stage of disinvestment as the land, you know, and the, the not paying of real estate taxes is the, the, the last step, right? You're, right. You're, uh, you're not making essential repairs. You're not fixing apartments up as you go along, keep milking money out of the building. And then eventually you stop paying real estate taxes and start milking even more money out of the building. And then the, eventually the building ends up in city ownership. We had started in UHAB in 73, focusing on vacant buildings. And the theory is we take vacant building, we're going to renovate the vacant building, and that's going to be a kind of spark for neighborhood improvement. And we did that in 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, all the way for the next year. But starting in 77, we realized that there were these buildings that were not vacant, but occupied and with no management in place. And they were a perfect place for tenants to take over the buildings. And you have shifted its focus from renovation of abandoned buildings that are vacant to conversion of abandoned buildings that were occupied into co-ops. Okay. And so we therefore did more tenant organizing, training, and that, that program got started. The focus was on the TIL program, Tenant Interim Lease, and uh, the name speaks for itself. We went around and organized tenants associations, and you read our early program design for the tenant interim lease program, it basically said, organize your tenants, get 50% of you to sign a piece of paper saying you want to run your own building, mm -hmm. and we'll get you an interim lease. You have would help organize the group, provide training, help them. If you think about managing a building and you look at all the services you have today, they all came organically out of the needs of the buildings starting in the mm -hmm. 70s. Well, you know, what do they need? They need heat and hot water so we organize buying clubs for oil they need access to bookkeeping and accounting technical assistance so that they can run the building well we have loads of that kind of training you know organizing an occupied building to become a co-op it's not a group that has self-selected itself it's a random group that happens to be there <laughs> mm. um, so for some people cooperative ownership and working together to uh, preserve their housing and keep it low cost is something they want to invest their time and energy in. Mm -hmm. For other people, you know, they don't want to invest their time and energy in that. They just want to rent an apartment. So most of the till co-ops, so it would evolve over time. 
you know, I think most of the residents, you know, in retrospect will look back and say it's the best thing I've ever did because mm. I have a low cost apartment in New York and it's been good enough. And the value of having a low cost place of your own that you can manage and control yourself is very, very high. You know, listen, I, I, I think more than ever, I believe in people having the option to be involved with their own housing. But in New York, we have a lot of cooperative ownership and having that as a option for people, I think is incredibly important. I contacted uh, someone involved in the program, uh, went and was interviewed and began to understand the concept of reclaiming hmm. land yeah. and structures. A little bit different than claiming, reclaiming, your identity as an African-American or as a woman. This is Io Harrington. Io is the only person to be interviewed who is never a UHAB employee. She is the founder of the Lower East Side Housing Development Fund Corporation Alliance and has dedicated her life to advancing affordable housing, women's rights, and racial justice. In this interview, she talks about organizing her building and her neighborhood. I have uh, lived in the East Village Alphabet City area for the most part since 1967-68 permanently. Uh, I came to live here with uh, my sister and my brother-in-law. My sister was a member, had just graduated from college and was a member of Students for a Democratic Society, Tom Hayden's organization. And my brother-in-law was um, a founding member of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was a leading civil rights organization in the 60s, and he was also a member of the Freedom Singers. Uh, I was sent here by my parents so I could be around people who were more like me. And fortunately for me, um, those people, my sister and my brother-in-law, were people that were intimately involved in civil rights activities and efforts, and that is what colored and influenced my philosophy and my work over the years. They took me to historic places like the Fillmore East, where you would hear people like Rap Brown or Stokely Carmichael or uh, other people involved in social justice issues speak. Um, Tompkins Square Park was my playground. Uh, I went to both private and public schools and uh, learned about what it really means to live as a black person in this society and in this country. They taught me a lot of things that led to homesteading. Um, and the first thing is, is if you have a problem, then you need to identify it and you need to define it. Mm -hmm. And then you need to determine how you can resolve the problem. If it's an individual problem, it's work that you have to do. If it is a problem that is bigger than just you, you have to define it in a way that influences other people to buy in and to identify with it so that you can build a movement, small or large. You give it a name. Right. You do outreach. You educate people. And you determined together how you're going to improve or resolve the situation. We could be talking about health care. We could be talking about criminal justice reform. We could be talking about affordable housing. Mm -hmm. We had gone through a really 
difficult 60s in the city. And in the 70s, of course, um, we were bankrupt. Mm -hmm. The president of the United States said, uh, we're not giving you any money. It was a huge newspaper, Mm -hmm. you know, um, media frenzy when he said that to New York. But the result here in this community, uh, coupled with the fact that um, there was a huge influx of drugs deliberately that occurred in this neighborhood meant that the agencies that were supposed to be providing services were not doing so. Mm. So the schools didn't have the resources that they needed. Sanitation in Alphabet City was rarely picked up. Mm -hmm. Um, You could go days without it being picked up. Uh, There were lots of abandoned lots, and there were lots of abandoned buildings. And the reason for this was that landlords couldn't get people to move into the neighborhood Right. on one hand. On the other hand, they understood that they could not get high rents, but what they could get was insurance payoffs. So between the abandoned buildings and drug users and sellers squatting in these buildings because mm-hmm. there was no monitoring, no, no supers, no one looking out. Right. The number of abandoned buildings and through fires, the burning of buildings and their eventual collapse mm-hmm. ended up with hundreds of abandoned buildings and hundreds of vacant lots in this neighborhood mm-hmm. alone. So squatting had been happening for at least a dozen years rapidly here in this neighborhood Mm -hmm. before the city decided to formalize a program to both support uh, and monitor it. And they created within the Housing Preservation Development Agency a program called Urban Homesteading. Mm -hmm. They had similar programs as well, uh, but the one that I became involved in was urban homesteading. By the time that I became involved, and so what this was, was as an organization that was called LISAC, and it actually got site control from the city of New York for probably about 30 buildings in Alphabet City. And three of them are on this block. And they created a process through which Uh, The focus was on providing affordable housing for people in the neighborhood. Mm. And the conversation evolved into what is affordable at one point may not be affordable in the future. Right, yeah. So there were requirements. We were required to, uh, to participate in this program to provide monthly dues. Um, so that we could earn income in order to pay for or do the work by the materials we needed for the work, in addition to having that organization actually do large grants from the city and banks and places like that. But we had to show our own commitment. We were also required to do between 8 to 12 hours of work a week. So winter, summer, spring, or fall, it didn't matter. You had to be at your assigned site. Mm -hmm. And you had to engage in gutting and rebuilding or what, you know, under the, uh, under a certified contractor and architect who helped us. Uh, We, depending on the structure, were able to have input into what we would have on each floor and each apartment, so on and so forth. 
But the main thing is, is, is that we had to actually do the work. And with our bare hands, it wasn't like today. We had to actually carry things down in the white construction buckets. Yeah. Bucket by bucket, brick by brick. Wow. It was difficult for me because I have a, had a son uh, who was young at the time in elementary school. In addition to doing the work, you also had to meet with whoever was the core group of people. In my case, we were creating a core group of people, again, with the focus being on people who actually lived in the neighborhood and who were economically challenged. Mm. And once, you know, you get the pass from the core group of people, uh, you get assigned this work and you have to learn to work cooperatively. You have to work and you have to learn that, you know, there were no excuses you know, that if your goal is to get affordable housing in perpetuity, not just for a minute, but for a lifetime, right. then these are the sacrifices and commitments that you have to make in order to have that happen. So there were a lot of uh, trials and tribulations along the way. I was a single parent with a young child, and I fortunately had my sister, you know, the one who actually helped to raise me from the age of 16. Mm. Uh, she lives, lived and still lives in the neighborhood, and she agreed to take my son initially every Saturday morning until Saturday evening for the several years that it took to complete this project. Mm-hmm. When it was time to rebuild after gutting, we also had to actually spend one night in the building wow. in order to make sure that no one came in, stole our stuff. We had one tiny room in which we enclosed and locked ourselves and um, a telephone that we hoped no one would cut the wires to. It was way before cell phones. We're talking, you know, the 80s. So my sister ultimately had to agree that my son would spend every Friday night with her. And that part went on for a three-year period. Mm -hmm. So without her support, I would have never been able to uh, be in the position that I'm in today. So, in addition to the fact that, you know, we were reclaiming this building, Mm -hmm. we also had a larger network of buildings that we met with and worked with. In a given day, I might be asked to go and work on the building Mm -hmm. down the street because I had a large project for that day, or any one of a number of three buildings on 11th Street, or on Avenue C, or 7th Street, or 5th Street. So I know for certain that my bare hands worked on getting and rebuilding uh, nine buildings minimally in this neighborhood. And when I walk by those buildings, um, I feel such a sense of satisfaction Mm. and joy knowing that I actually participated in creating homes for people that are affordable who live in my community who I see in the supermarket I see in the bank who call me if there's a problem so on and so forth Born and raised in Santiago, Chile Fernando Alarcón was active in community organizing until the persecution of activists under the military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet forced him to leave the country He made his way to New York, where he stayed with a friend on the Upper West Side. The building was in the process of being renovated by homesteaders, and Fernando quickly began to work on renovating the fourth floor. 
After a year in New York, Alarcón was offered a job by UHAB in 1982 as a bilingual coordinator for all of Brooklyn. He went on to hold various roles at UHAB and continues to work with them as a consultant. First, we didn't see the housing crisis. Little by little, I start to realize that was a housing crisis. And when people visiting me from Chile, I say, I'm going to show you the real New York. And I took them to South Bronx. So I showed them blocks and blocks of empty building, like an atomic bomb dropped there. Wow. This is the real New York, and this is this is the the first time that I I took a hold of the of the housing crisis, mm. and I say, well, we have to work in the housing crisis as better we can, because in in Chile I did homeless organization. Mm. We took pieces of land, empty land, and we ask the government to give this land to the people. So we organize so-called campamentos. So we organize them, we create security, we create uh, sanitation, we create a school, we create a, a couple of things for the people to live around the campamentos. With the military dictatorship, all this was out. All this thing happened to 70 to 73. In 73 came the military. They destroy everything. Mm-hmm. And they persecute everyone who was involved in this kind of stuff. What was the, the driving motivation for you to do that sort of work? Before was the political stuff. We knew that if we organize people in their, in their situation where they live, they, they, the people are gonna work with the uh, industry and, uh, and, um, and, and so on. The motivation was was a political stuff first mm-hmm. to get those people organized and 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 develop. So when I saw the problem in New York, I say, well, if I am staying in New York, I'm going to work for a, a an organization that is a tool mm-hmm. that in to, to resolve this situation. You know, t- working with the community, still today I receive phone call, invite me for lunch or for dinner with those people, all people mm-hmm. now. <laughs> and I have good, good sense, good uh, feeling for working with the community and uh, teaching them how to do A, B, and C and uh, having lunch and having dinner with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, to talk about their daily life problems, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or so. 
Is that something you in your building back in the in the 80s? Is that something that you did regularly too? Did you meet for dinner in your building? Did you, you know, just spend a lot of time together? Yeah, I spent a lot of time together with them. Hmm. Yeah, many buildings they invite me for lunch or for dinner. They have food. Yeah. Because in La in Latin America. It, to have food ready for you is something, something important. <laughs> What's the most important thing about that community and being together? For me, it was the solidarity with, uh, with my country, because my country was living in such a hard time. You know, we did a lot of uh, solidarity with Chile. We raise money, we do peñas. Peñas is a kind of a where you, you eat and you sing songs and, uh, and, um, and, and this kind of stuff. In a, in a home studying building, we do everything together. Mm -hmm. We do, even we do some stuff in the house. We do all the community areas. Mm -hmm. But we do some time in the house. Sometimes uh, this person didn't know how to put uh, electricity. So came there to show them how to put electricity together. I learned, uh, I learned right there. I didn't have no experience with uh, tec technical stuff. So I learned how to do electricity. I learned how to do plumbing. I learned how to do chirurg. I learned how to do all this kind of stuff. You know, the big, the big problem in the Upper West Side, in the home studying building, probably was uh, participation. Participation, always there is a couple of people who do everything. Mm. The books and, the, and everything. So it's difficult to get people involved in, in this stuff. You know, the idea will be that everyone know how to be a president, how to be a treasurer, how to be a secretary. Mm -hmm. Happened, doesn't happen in the real life. In the mm. real life, one person is the president forever. Mm. And until, you know, opposition happen, and uh, this person is changed. Ann Henderson has been involved with UHAB for over 40 years, serving in various roles over the years. She was a founding member of a homesteading project in East Harlem that renovated a vacant city-owned building into apartments for seven families. In 1978, UHAB and the Task Force on City-Owned Property worked with the city to create the Tenant Interim Lease Program, or TIL. Through TIL, tenants of city-owned buildings go through an interim period managing the building while they receive training and support to prepare them for ownership. Tenants eventually buy their apartments for the price of $250 each as part of a limited equity co-op. In this interview, you'll hear Anne talk about her experiences with the TIL program. When in 1978, when the city started the tenant interim lease program, I applied for the position. 
probably would not have gotten it if I wasn't fluent in Spanish. So I started out, you know, as a, we were called field coordinators at that time. It's a brand new program, the TILT program. So everything we did, we had to create for ourselves. You know, we had to create bookkeeping. We had to go out and meet with the tenants and the leaders and see what they needed. So we developed a whole curriculum with the idea that they came to these classes and then they immediately went back home and started using it. We felt that, you know, we, had, we were in a u- unique position that we understood the organizational issues. We understood the, you know, the social issues. We understood the, the budgeting and the financial issues. We understood how to work with these buildings. You know, and the city had all these programs with these community-based organizations where they would renovate buildings and then rent them out to tenants and they owned them. So they became, that's one way that they did it. And the other way was this tenant interim lease program. And, and originally the tenant interim lease program was the largest, most successful program they had. There were all these people who had been struggling in the final years as their landlord was abandoning the building, trying to hold on to keep a roof over their head and, you know, keep the pipes from freezing and, you know, keep the neighbors to agree to give them enough money to fill up the fuel tank. Um, By the time they, the till program was created, that's why so many buildings came in the first few years. They had hundreds of buildings, hundreds of buildings all over the city. We sort of felt like there was a, that our role was to uh, advocate both through the training and, and helping the development of the, organiz- the tenant organizations, but also acting as sort of an, an intermediary between them and the city who was the owner. And that sort of gave us some freedom and that meant that the staff at HPD had to sort of understand that sometimes we were going to be with them and sometimes we were going to be fighting them about this or that. The city sold the buildings in the worst condition to the lowest income people in the city of New York with, you know, no major capital improvements, no reserve funds, um, you know, no support net, and expected them to succeed. Totally mm. different than the Mitchell Lama program where, you know, there were new buildings and all these reserves and all sorts of stuff. And they just sort of said, we sold it to you for two fifty an apartment. Goodbye. Have a nice life. It's it's very difficult to to if you grow up with a mentality, with a experience that you have never owned anything, mm. that you were a tenant, that you had certain rights as a tenant. It's very hard to change that into a sense of ownership. It's not. It's it's not. It's just not automatic. You know, I'm trying to teach people that they need to be able to make decisions for themselves. And, and at the same time, I need them to trust me. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interviews with Charles Laven, Fernando Alarcón, Ayo Harrington, and Anne Henderson were conducted by Connor Snow as part of the 2020 Oral History of UHAB. Interference Archive worked with UHAB earlier this year to present a public exhibition telling their history through the photographs, newsletters, oral histories, and training manuals found in their archive. 
You can find more information on our website, interferencearchive.org. You can also check out the links in our show notes or listen to episode 74, We the People Won't Go, a recording of an event featuring some of the Lower East Side residents who turned their squat into a low-income co-op. Thank you to UHAB and to Charles, Ayo, Anne, Fernando, and Connor for granting us permission to share excerpts from these interviews with you. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.